Thanks, guys. Well, thank you for joining us. We're going to spend some time studying the scriptures together now. Um, This is something we do every week. This is a pretty important part of of why we gather and how we gather. Uh, We study the Bible every week because we believe that it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So we believe that if we want to get to know Jesus, then we have to get to know the scriptures. We'll find out more about him. We'll hear from him as we study the scriptures. We're in John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John. Um, You can open up, if you have a device or if you have a Bible, John chapter 4, no, John chapter 3. It's the fourth book of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, We're on page 888 tonight. So as we study the Gospel of John, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Trying to get to know him better. And this week, we're entitling chapter 3, The Shock of Grace. The Shock of Grace. We're going to see a conversation between Jesus and one of the religious leaders of his day. Um, And before I get into that conversation, I wanted to share what I think is a helpful background story from the Old Testament. Um, and wanted to kind of get you in that mindset because Jesus is drawing on some of this stuff from uh, the prophecies of an Old Testament character named Ezekiel. He's going to be drawing on that in the conversation that we're going to read about today. And so I want to kind of take you back to this uh, promise and prophecy that God made to Ezekiel during the exile period. So what happened in the, the history of Israel is they had rebelled against God. They hadn't lived up to the calling that God had given them to love the nations around them, to live out his justice to each other. So he said, all right, I'm just going to exile you. I'm going to scatter you. Um, he scattered them all over the world. Several different uh, great empires kind of tromped over them, destroyed their nation, scattered people abroad. But promises and prophecies kept coming to the people where God said, hey, I'm, I'm going to restore you. I'm still going to do something great through you. You're still my people. And one of the particular promises that God made to Ezekiel and to the other Old Testament prophets was that God was going to actually change their hearts. Because ultimately, the problem was that they just didn't love God, right? I remember in my own life, that was like a big wake-up for me as I realized, I don't know if you've ever had this moment, it's an important part of every American's development to realize, oh, I'm not a Christian just because I grew up in a Christian country, right? Like, I don't actually love God. I had to realize there was something wrong with my heart. And he's promising to the Old Testament people of God, through the prophet Ezekiel and in other places as well, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to wash your heart. I'm going to send the Spirit to renew your heart. I'm going to wash it clean from sin, and I'm going to put the Spirit in your heart so that you will love me and love other people. And then he gives a really weird vision after that. So this is really creepy, so hold, hold on for just a second. He takes Ezekiel, he says in the Spirit, so it's like a vision, it's kind of like a dream, and he has Ezekiel walking around this valley of dead bones. So you know the scene in the movie when the skeleton pops out and everybody's scared? It's like that, but more, because it's lots of dead skeletons, right? And there's a lot of like onomatopoeia sound words in the Hebrew where he's like crunching across the bones. It's kind of gross. It, I think, probably made Ezekiel sick to his stomach as he was experiencing this. It was repulsive. It was shocking. It was horrifying. And then God asks him, son of man, it's a common thing to call the prophets, Son of man, can these bones live? And what did Ezekiel say? It's really interesting because I was thinking if I was Ezekiel, I would want to say, no, they're dead, right? Like that's the simple answer. But Ezekiel gave a, a good like religious answer. He said, oh God, only you know, right? Only you know the answer to that God. And then God says, Ezekiel, prophesy to the dead bones. Prophesy to them. Tell them the Lord says, live. And so what does he do? He 
prophesies to the dead skeleton bones he's been crunching across. And he says, hey, bones, the Lord says live. And guess what happens? They come to life. They begin to live. And Jesus is, is referencing this. We don't always see it on the first reading, but Jesus is referencing this section of Scripture when he's talking to a religious leader. He's saying, it's not enough to be religious. You're dead. You need new life. And so that's where I want to pick up in John 3. And this guy is like the best of the best. It's going to use the word Pharisee, which was the class of people that had studied and memorized the Bible. They knew the the Bible better than any of us. They memorized it. Uh, They were the teachers. They were also political leaders. And he's a ruler among this class of people that are already rulers and already the best at knowing and keeping and obeying the Scriptures. They were the strictest group of followers of the Old Testament. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I'll stop there. Um, It's a nice place to stop, right? It's a little more familiar. We know that verse. The other verses are a little weird, but we'll we'll look into this in more detail. Uh, As we move through the text, I want to also kind of back up and say, as I described the shock of grace, the theological term for this Shock that restarts life when there's death is called regeneration. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard that term. Have you heard the term regeneration? A lot of you are familiar with that term, so it's a theological term. It basically is pretty clear, means what it sounds like. There's not life, and then there is life. Biologists would, would use that term, right, if there's a volcano and everything dies and then plants start growing back. That would be regeneration, right? There's new life where there's been death. And so what Jesus is describing here. What Ezekiel was prophesying about is regeneration. It's coming to people who are spiritually dead and giving them life by God's grace, by the power of his spirit. So we're going to see three shocks that Jesus is confronting them with here as we look through the text. Uh, The first one is we're going to see the shock that we're all dead. We're all lost. Like none of us escape the problem. We we all have the same problem. We're all in the same boat. The second one is John 3.16 intimated God actually loves us. That's a shock. I know it Sounds like, oh yeah, we know that, we've heard that before, but still, it's a shock, and we should dwell on that for a minute. And then the final shock that we're going to look at is that Jesus is completely unique. He's different than everybody else, and 
we want to avoid the temptation of thinking that Jesus is one choice among many. Because Jesus and John the Baptist and John the Apostle that's writing this book and, and really everybody else is saying, no, Jesus is totally different. He's, he's some complete other category we don't know what to do with. So let me pray for us and then we'll look at it in more detail. God, we pray that you would teach us tonight. Um, I pray that you would help us to focus. There's a lot here. Help us to hear from you what we need to hear. Help us to trust you. Help us to have open minds to receive your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the first shock in what he's saying to Nicodemus is that we're all lost. The emphasis is on the all. Uh, We're all dead. We're all needy. We're all spiritually hungry in some way, and Nicodemus is not quite recognizing this. And we need to recognize that those of us that are religious, that come to church, that study our Bible, are going to be tempted to be like Nicodemus and think, well, I'm doing the stuff that God has asked me to do, therefore God owes me blessing. And I'm fulfilling my side of the deal, now he has to fulfill his part of the deal. And that's a common problem that religious people have. We think God owes us something because we've been faithful. And Jesus is trying to break down that, that syllogism, right, in uh, Nicodemus's head. So the first thing I already talked about, uh, the Pharisees were the, the best of the best, right? They were the most religious, they were the most faithful, they were the most obedient, they did all the right things. They obeyed their Bible, they obeyed their Bible better than you, better than me, better than anybody we know. They're very strict adherents to the law of God. And this guy, Nicodemus, was like a ruler among them. He calls him a ruler. Uh, he says later, you were the teacher of the Jews. Like he's, he's the top dog, right? Like this is like a theological professor in the sense that like he had a PhD in theology and knew it all, but, but also a very moral, ethical person in that he's someone that they would have followed, right? They would have seen, seen him as someone that's doing the right things too. Uh, in our day and age, we tend to split that up, right? There are people you follow and people that know stuff. Here, it's both, right? He knows stuff and he's doing it. He's doing what he knows. He's faithful. And Jesus uh, is confronted by Nicodemus. It's interesting, look at verse two. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, I don't wanna spend a whole lot of time on that, but there's something to that, right? There's literary significance. Nicodemus did not come to him in broad daylight. He came to him at night. We might say secretly. And this is what he said. Rabbi, he's calling him teacher. We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he says, hey, we know you're a good teacher because of the signs, but remember the context of where we are in the Gospel of John. Again, remember, John was really written to be read all at once. And just last week, we ended with this whole idea that there were signs that people saw, and some of them believed, but Jesus knew that he shouldn't entrust himself to these people that believed just because of the signs. And so at the very end of chapter 2, it says something along the lines of, people believed because of the signs, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Or people trusted him because of the signs, but Jesus did not entrust himself to men. And it ends with, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. Nobody had to tell him what was in the heart of man, Right? And we talked about how throughout John, there's this kind of push-pull tension of signs are good. They show us that Jesus is awesome, but signs can be bad because we can keep saying, no, give me more signs. No, give me more signs. I I need more reasons to believe. I need more reasons to believe. And we can kind of use signs as a way almost to hold Jesus at arm's length and say, well, you haven't given me the right sign or the right combination, or I haven't seen enough of them. And so Jesus is pressing on him here. He says, hey, I've seen signs, so I know you're a real teacher. And Jesus says, verse 3, truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
The truly, truly thing sounds weird, right? We don't say that in our language. This is just a common Aramaic Hebrew way of speaking. Uh, in the ancient text, it says verily, verily. I don't know if you've heard that in the kind of Shakespearean or King James. Uh, some versions would say amen, amen. It's like when we pray and we say amen, we're just saying truly or like so be it or right on, right? Like that's kind of what it means. So he's, he's emphasizing this, and this would have been a common way for them to speak, right? Um, we say stuff like frankly or let me be honest with you, which is a strange thing to say, right? Because it implies that you're lying the rest of the time. But anyway, he's saying truly, truly. Like this is really, like pay attention, okay? Truly, truly. Unless once born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is telling him, let, let me rephrase it. Nicodemus is like, we see that you are a part of what God is doing because of these, you know, miraculous signs. Jesus says, nah, you don't see it. Unless you're born again, you're not going to see any of the kingdom of God. He's pressing him to see his brokenness, his disconnection from God. This is someone who is the top of his game in religion thinking, I'm connected. And Jesus is like, you're not as connected as you think. But let's keep going. Nicodemus said, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Commentators say that Nicodemus isn't just completely misunderstanding Jesus here. He's kind of fighting with Jesus, right? Because the Jews in the first century had a category for needing to be spiritually reborn. It's not that he had never heard this before. It's that the Jews in the first century thought only dirty Gentiles needed to be spiritually reborn. But that was not a need for the good people like Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is like, oh, well, you know, of course, this doesn't make any sense. Jesus, and he's kind of, he's, he's sparring with them. He's pushing back on what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is like, nope, you need it too, Nicodemus. You need to be born again, spiritually born again. So he's like, how can this happen? Jesus answered, verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. So here is where he picks up the connections with Ezekiel 36 and really a lot of other places in the Old Testament. But one of the reasons uh, we see this connecting is because in Ezekiel 36, it's one of these places where it talks about that heart change being uh, the washing of the heart and the embedding of the spirit, like two parts of our salvation, right? We think about this, I think a parallel in the New Testament would be, we talk often about how we need Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, so our sins are washed away, and we need resurrection life, right? So we're believing both in Jesus' substitutionary death for us, but also in his substitutionary resurrection life for us, that he has eternal life that is given to us. So kind of a, a negative and a positive there. And so Jesus is referring Ezekiel, referencing Ezekiel 36 where this comes up. Another phrase that says it almost in the same way is Titus 3.5. If you're looking for the references on this, Titus 3.5 says um, we're saved by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So this kind of washing and Holy Spirit thing. Some commentators are like, oh, see, this means uh, water baptism and spiritual regeneration. And I think that's okay. Like, I don't think you're evil if you think that. I just, I think that's wrong. I think so many times we see these two things together and it's saying both things are spiritual rebirth. The washing is spiritual rebirth and the spiritual regeneration, spiritual birth. But again, this, this is like one of those things that Christians disagree on. So my take is both phrases are parallel with new birth, the spirit. The next phrase, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit, right? What does flesh mean? Flesh is not just skin, but flesh throughout the Bible is our strength. 
Um, I, I said this earlier, our keyboardist is named Eunice, and I kept saying the you-ness of you, right? And she's like, you kept saying my name, is confusing me, so I'll try to say it in a different way. Um, it, it's the us-ness of us, okay? <laughs> it's, it's the part of us that is strong, right? It's the part of us that you rely on, like, like I'm pretty good with people. And God doesn't want me to throw that away, right? Like, I'm going to be a people person. I'm a pastor. I work with people a lot. I enjoy that. Um, But there's a temptation to put all my eggs in that basket and say, you know what? Me caring for people and being involved in people's lives, that's what gives me meaning in life, right? Like, investing everything in that, which is actually the strength of my flesh, and then I'm saving myself by my flesh. I'm relying on my flesh. For you, it might be like you're really organized, or you might have a great job. Right? Like some of you might be like Nicodemus. You might be the top of your game. You might be like the smartest person in your class of people, and your class of people is the greatest group out there, and everybody respects you, and everybody wants to be like you. And the temptation then is to rely on that and to say, this skill I have at work or the money that I've invested or all these good things I've done, that's relying on your flesh, saying, that's what's going to make my life have meaning, or that's what's going to save me. We usually don't say it quite that overtly, right? But he's saying, be careful, Nicodemus. Don't rely on your flesh. Repeatedly throughout the scripture, flesh is the opposite of relying on the spirit. So the trick of the Christian life is that we would actually use the gifts he's given us. We all have different strengths of our flesh, things we can do, often better than other people, or if not better, at least it's just something we can do, right? And we should do those to the glory of God, but we shouldn't rely on them as our hope. We should rely on God. And so this is exactly what he's describing here. He's saying there needs to be a spiritual rebirth. Relying on your flesh is not enough. Specifically, not only is Nicodemus awesome, but he's born of the tribe, thinking we're the clean tribe. We're the good people. So, So don't rely on your birth, right? And so don't rely on, well, I had really good parents. My parents were Christians. My parents were nice. That makes me okay. No, that's relying on your flesh birth instead of relying on a spiritual rebirth. So in verse 7, he says, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. A lot of people point to this as an evidence of God's sovereign grace. And what that means is that God is gracious because he is God not because of us being um, good recipients of grace, right? Or like, he doesn't save us because we're savable. He saves us because that's what God does. He doesn't forgive us because you're halfway forgivable, and he doesn't want to forgive that other person that's really hard to forgive, but he'll forgive you because you're kind of nice, right? No, he forgives because he forgives. So think of it through the lens of someone who is the best of the best, the, the most upright of the most upright. He knows the whole Bible, and he's thinking, well, I've got all my ducks in a row, Jesus is saying, no, you need spiritual rebirth, even you, Nicodemus, and the Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You can't control it. You can't control spiritual rebirth. He's trying to, like, push Nicodemus off balance. Have you ever come to that place where you're like, I I give up? Sometimes we call it spiritual surrender. I can't do it, God. I need you. Jesus is lovingly, lovingly pushing him off balance. You're not in control. The wind blows wherever it wants to. It's a play on words in the Greek and in the Hebrew Spirit and wind are the same word. Um, so the play on words is like always there every time that word is used. Either one, spirit and wind. So he's like, the wind blows wherever it wants to. So it is with the spirit. He's basically saying the spirit blows where it wants to. So it is with the spirit. Or the wind blows where it wants to. So it is with the wind. But context, we know he's talking about wind and spirit. They're using the same way. They're both things. 
that show effects, right? The leaves blow, but you can't like, you can't lasso the wind. I think there's someone could. Was it Pecos Bill? I don't know. Somebody could do that. But generally speaking, people can't lasso the wind, right? Like you can't control it. It's out of our control. God does what he will because he's good, because he's gracious, because he's the saver. It's not about us making ourselves so savable. And he's trying to help Nicodemus to understand this. And so then Nicodemus has this wonderful retort. It's interesting. His words get shorter and shorter. Uh, D.A. Carson pointed this out in his commentary. There's like this inversion where Nicodemus says a lot, Jesus says a little, Nicodemus says a little more, Jesus says a little more. And then now it's like, now all Nicodemus can say is, how can these things be? <laughs> like, he's like, what? This doesn't make sense. No. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now again, remember, there are disciples that are receiving Jesus' testimony and following him and seeing the signs and seeing the signs as added proof and, you know, bonus gravy to help them believe. And then there are the Pharisees and the rulers who are jealously seeing Jesus, not wanting to follow him and resisting him. And Jesus is like, you're not you're not following me. I'm, I'm giving a testimony here. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14, this is really weird, okay? Hold on. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Moses lifted a serpent up in the wilderness. Y'all know this story? It's a weird story. It's in Numbers chapter 21. And so we got to, on the one hand, say we're 21st century people that don't like weird Old Testament stories like this, okay? Just have to admit our prejudice and then say, but you know what? We trust Jesus has something to teach us. Let's see what Jesus has to teach us. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel were going through hard times. Kind of like us, when we start following Jesus and everything isn't perfect, we think, man, did I make the right choice? And the Israelites had been set free from their slavery in the Exodus period. And they were wandering in the desert and they're asking and wondering, man, did we say the, did we do the right thing? Like, we let God save us? Should we have let God save us? Maybe it'd be better to be slaves back in pagan Egypt and be abused again. Maybe we should go back to our slavery because we're not liking this so much. And so they were grumbling and they were complaining and they were saying, we want to be slaves again. We don't want to be saved anymore. We want to be enslaved again. That's what they were saying. And so this is the weird part. God in his kindness sends serpents that start biting them and killing them, okay? I know it doesn't sound like kindness, but listen to what happens. They're suffering because they're realizing what it's like to live life on their own. They're realizing what it's like. They're feeling the consequences of living a life separated from God. And that's a, that's a great mercy of God to let us actually feel it. Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is God giving us over to our own desires. And that wrath is even worse when we don't recognize that, that it's hell on earth. And so God's, in his kindness, giving them a little taste of like, this is not good. You don't really want this. You really want life without me? It's not good. These serpents are biting them, and some people are dying, and a lot of them are hurt because of the bites. And, and so then God says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to take a bronze serpent, it's like uh, representing a dead serpent, and put it up on a pole. And then I want the people to look up at it. And if the people look up at the serpent, representing the death of the serpent on the pole, on the staff, then they'll be healed. 
If they look away from their present circumstance and pain and they look up at the provision that I'm making for them, then they'll be saved. Jesus says, that's just like what's going to happen with me. The Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, says, he's going to be lifted up. People are going to look away from their present circumstances, whether good or bad, right? So those of us living in pain and abuse are going to look away from that and look up at Jesus and find healing. Those of us like Nicodemus who have a really good life and have everything together are going to look away from that and look up at Jesus being lifted up and say, he's my hope. We're going to find healing. And a lot of uh, Renaissance paintings, it's actually painted, this bronze serpent is actually painted in the figure of a cross, right? So that's, this is an interesting one I found. It's like a cross shape with the bronze on it. And that kind of helps us connect the dots that Jesus is connecting. Jesus doesn't say, and it was shaped like a cross, right? At this point, when Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, he's, the characters in the moment don't even know about the cross yet, right? So in a, in a general sense, he's saying, as he is lifted up, people are going to look to him as the point of salvation. And it's going to get even better, right? They're going to realize, oh, there's even more fulfillment here. He's going to literally be lifted up on a pole like the serpent. And then we can connect the dots back in Genesis. The first promise of the gospel is about the serpent being killed. And so Jesus is the son of Eve that's defeated the serpent. And so there's this beautiful connection. Again, there are these like literary bumps and echoes throughout the entire Bible where in Genesis 3.15, God promises Eve, you're going to have a son someday that's going to crush the serpent. The serpent will be defeated once and for all. Moses lifts this dead serpent up and people are healed when they look to the dead serpent. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to be lifted up as the symbol of the death of the serpent once and for all. And that's the promise that he's telling Nicodemus, you've you got to look to me. You can't look to yourself. Look away from your circumstances. Look out for an external salvation that comes by the providence of God. It's not something you can do for yourself. It's something you have to look to in faith. I hope you see all those parallels. So number one, are you like Nicodemus? Are you on the positive side where you've got so many things going well for you that it's hard for you to see your need for salvation? You're the number one person that, that Jesus is attacking in this passage. Like your life is so good, you might be tempted to think, my life is good. An example of this, the, a dialogue that's like this is in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, Jesus compares a Pharisee, the really good Bible obeyer, and he compares that person to a tax collector, which would have been kind of like the, the gangster, the pimp of the first century, right? Just a bad person, a sinner. And he compares those two people. And he says, I tell you what, there was a Pharisee, a Bible obeyer that, that went up to the temple. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all the bad people. Thank you for that. And I kind of feel bad for this guy. I'm like, there's probably some real genuine gratitude for God's grace but Jesus compares him to the tax collector, and he says, the tax collector, the bad guy, goes to the temple and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, guess who went home justified that day? The bad guy, because he recognized he was bad. So one of the greatest dangers, if you're really good, you're really faithful, you're really doing all the right things, is to think that you're somehow saving yourself. You're indebting God to you. Go read Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, and say, am I like the older brother? Or am I like the younger brother? Do I think that God owes me? Do I think I've done so many good things that God owes me a good life, that he owes me blessing? Or do I just recognize, man, anything I get is grace. It's all a gift from him. I want to challenge some of you, you may not be this religious figure who's faithful, but you may be the secular version of Nicodemus. I think this is common as well. There are the secular Nicodemuses out there where you do everything right according to the secular academy. You're obeying the laws of science. 
Eurobank best practices in the uh, Harvard Business Review and psychology journals, and you expect the universe to pay you back with a good life. It's really the same thing, right? It's, it's just another kind of religion. You just don't call it religion. We can do this with anything. Any strength of our flesh, we can start depending on and make it our salvation. Jesus says, don't do that. Run to God. Ask God to save you. It's not something you can control. It's got to be total surrender. We're all lost. We all need external salvation from God. The next point is that God loves you. So he's been drilling it into his head. No, really, you are bad. No, really, you are lost. Really, you are broken. And so he's now going to emphasize, but God loves you, okay? God loves you. He doesn't just leave you in your lostness, right? It was kind of harsh. The Numbers 21 story was kind of harsh, right? Fiery serpents biting people. That's judgment. Um, and also the stuff about the wind, you know, spirit does whatever it wants to. Good luck. You know, that's kind of what it sounds like. Here he's clarifying, but God loves you. God loves you. John 3.16, famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you're like, I don't know. How do you know God is love? This is how. He sent his son to save us. That's how we know that God is love. That's it because God sent his son. That's how we know that God is love. And so it says so that we wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And those are really the two options. And I I want you to understand that there's kind of an asymmetry to this. We think it's like um, the choice, and this is often how it's held out in scripture. It's like choose blessing or choose cursing. And that's a common way for the Bible to talk. But really, we've already chosen the cursing, right? It's not like we're standing fresh, like which way will I go? We've all chosen the wrong way. We've already all gone down the wrong path. That's what it's saying. Because he goes on, the the ending, the last section where we talk about John the Baptist, he says, God's wrath is like resting on us. And here he says um, in this section that we're already condemned. So let me read it. So John 3.16, he loves us and he loves us so that we shouldn't perish. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this current mission It's not a condemnation mission, it's a salvation mission. And the preaching in Acts and the prophecies in Revelation say that Jesus will come back and there will be a final condemnation where Jesus will act more as a final judge. That is coming. But this mission is a salvation mission. He's not here to condemn people. But, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already. That word in the Greek means already. That's what it means, okay? So you're already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we have this reaction to the light because we don't want to be exposed. We're running away. He's saying we're already condemned. And again, to tie that in with what he was trying to explain to Nicodemus, there's this theme I think we see in literature of zombies. Uh, This is a little screenshot from World War Z. I purposely got like a blurry one so it wouldn't gross you guys out. Um, A lot of movies, a lot of TV, a lot of books being written about zombies, specifically apocalyptic literature in general. And I think our art and our world is reflecting the vibe that we have, that there's something really broken with us. Like humanity's really messed up. Um, my generation, Gen X, we have that you know cool name that sounds really negative. Um, 
that's kind of what we're all about. Like, yeah, reality bites. We're broken. Something's wrong with us, right? Millennials are supposed to be more hopeful, but there's this stuff that keeps coming up, right, in our news cycles and in our literature and in our art that's like, there's something wrong out there. The temptation is to divide. I think this is what we see in the literature. The zombies are out there. Those are the bad people. We're the good people. You know what? If we could just rally together and just kind of gather us good people in a room and keep the, the zombies out, then we'll be safe. And Jesus is saying, no, we're, we're all zombies. We're all zombies. We, we need rebirth. We need spiritual life. Not one of us have escaped. Whether you're the best of the Jews or the worst of the pagans, we're all the zombies. And so that's what he's trying to communicate here. So, so listen, God loves you. Don't miss that. Your instinct will be to run from the light because you don't want God to know. Because of the shame, you want to you wanna get out of there. And he's saying, but come to the light. God loves you. Your instinct is to hide from God. When God is walking in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, he said to Adam, Adam, where are you? But God knew where Adam was. And I, I want you to understand, he's saying the same thing to you. He's, he's pursuing you in love. He's saying, where are you? And he, he wants you to come out into the light because he loves you. And he paid for your sin. He doesn't want you to keep hiding. He doesn't want you to stay in your shame. He's calling to you in love. He's not like calling you out so he can whack you, right? It's not like some trick. He's saying, where are you? Come out. He already knows about the sin. He's waiting for you to come out and admit. Confession means, the Christian word confession means to agree. It means to be like, yeah, you're right. I got a problem here. Can you help me? And so 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says there's two kinds of people. There are people that lie and say they don't have sin. That's what he's trying to break through with Nicodemus. And then there are those who confess and God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two kinds of people. You either hide it or you admit it, and, and God gives you grace. And then in James 5.16, he says, that should come into how we relate with one another. Confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. That should come out in the social dynamic of who we are as the church as well. We want to hide from God. God already knows. We want to hide from each other. We already halfway know, Right? Like, I already know there's something wrong with you. I may not know exactly what's wrong with you yet. I haven't pinpointed it yet. But I know there's something wrong with you. You know there's something wrong with me. As Christians, we have this freedom to come out with it because we know God has already forgiven us. So we can share those things and pray for each other and find healing in community. Um, so God loves you. Don't run away, but run towards him. The last point we see with John the Baptist is that Jesus is truly unique. So, um, again, the temptation is to see Jesus as, like, one of the best teachers out there. There's a bunch of gurus, and he's the best guru. Or one of the best systems of work righteousness out there is Christianity. He's going to say, no, it's not, it's not even the same system. He's, he's not a guru. He's the God-man. He's, he's not like everybody else. He's totally different than everybody else. And so, this comes out in the interchange with John the Baptist. So, verses 22 through 36, verse 22 after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing. Okay, we've got a rivalry here, okay? See this? Jesus was baptizing with his dudes. John was baptizing with his dudes. At Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized. I don't know why that just strikes me as really funny. He's baptizing people because they were coming and being baptized. Okay. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't pick this translation. Okay, verse 24, 
for John had not yet been put in prison. So later on, he's going to get locked up. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And then they came to John and said to him, hey, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. This is the tattletale guy. He's like, John, everybody's following Jesus now. There's a problem, right? We have competition. And here's John's explanation. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. So he's like, we've been over this before. I already told you I'm not the Christ. Okay, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is saying, I'm the best man. He's the groom. The groom gets the bride and the party and the celebration. He's the point. And this is a little confusing for us. In the first century, the groom was the center of the party. Like in our world, it's the bride. Everything revolves around the bride, right? Which is interesting. Um, I won't make any comments on that. But in the, in the Mediterranean world still, and in the first century especially, the groom was the center of it. And Jesus is seen as the groom, and his people are the bride. They're joining together. We saw this last week in the whole wedding supper thing. Heaven is talked about as the great wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus talks about in the other Gospels that heaven is like a great wedding party. And John's like, yeah, it's a great wedding party, but he's a groom. I'm just the best man. I found a picture. I was Googling for pictures of a best man doing a toast because I was thinking, you know, there's this moment in a wedding party or reception where in our culture, the best man stands up and toasts the groom and the bride. Um, And I thought this picture was fascinating because it's two angles of the same scene of the best man giving the toast. And the angle on the left You're facing the best man, and you just see him in this glorious light. It's like all about him. Look at him. Doesn't he look awesome? But you turn the camera, and you see, you know what? He's toasting this whole party of people. Specifically there, you've got the groom and the bride. Um, He's focusing his attention somewhere else. And John is saying the same thing can happen to us. We might, from one angle, look at John and be like, hey, John's a great leader, and John's really important, and look at all the people following John, and maybe we're mixed up about John's identity. And John is saying, my whole reason for existence, the reason I have this following, John is saying, the reason I'm baptizing people is I'm pointing people to the groom. I'm toasting the groom. Do you see the groom? Do you see the party? Are you missing the party? Like, I'm not the point of this party. I'm just raising a glass to him. And so, yeah, people should follow him. And there's this, this great quote, he must increase, I must decrease. Have you all ever seen that some people have like a Christian uh, math problem bumper sticker with this? And it's always kind of confused me because I I get the math symbols mixed up, but it's, I think, trying to represent this phrase, right? Jesus needs to get bigger in my life. I need to be smaller, right? Like my job is to point to him. And that's true for any of us. And this kind of goes back to the gift thing where we're, are we relying on our flesh? Are we relying on the spirit? And I think we can use the gifts of our flesh, we all have unique personalities and unique circumstances, different jobs, different neighborhoods, different uh, sufferings, different details of life God has put us in. We can use those to point people to him. Paul talks about it in Corinthians, like we're, we've got treasure in jars of clay. We're cracked jars of clay, and our broken, goofy circumstances, we're pointing people to the treasure, to Jesus. That, that's our job. He must increase. We must decrease. John explains his uniqueness here. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, just a little side note, we're not exactly sure if this is John the Baptist talking or John the Apostle narrating. We're not really sure. I don't think it really matters because we would say this is God's word, right? So whoever's speaking at this point is explaining to us who Jesus is. And he goes on in verse 35. Well, verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. So again, kind of bringing us back to these Old Testament promises of the overflow of the Spirit and the renewal of the people of God and the new covenant. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Son has everything. He is unique. He's above all. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So again, we're already in the wrath The wrath is doing life on our own. Romans 1 says, the wrath of God poured out on us is giving us over to what we want. And so Jesus is pleading with Nicodemus. My pleading with us here today is is don't go for what we want, but surrender and say, God, what you want? What do you want? Give me life. Obviously, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need you. So it's spiritual surrender, the open hands of faith saying the son has life. I don't have life. He does. It's the shock of grace. Um, In the 60s and 70s, they started figuring out that when you electrocute someone who's already dead, they can get the heart to start beating again, right? They can shock it back to life. It's not a good idea if someone's heart is beating to electrocute them. The doctors can explain the details of how this works, But, but that shock can actually restart a heart that is still, There's something far greater that God has promised all the way back in the Old Testament to Ezekiel and Jesus is saying, it's here now in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son. He's saying, look to me. As I'm lifted up, look to me. And that shock of grace will restart your heart. You will now have spiritual life. Come to him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you invite us into this relationship of trust. And God, we confess that it scares us because we can't control it. We can't get you to do our will, but we surrender and we say we, we need you. We need the salvation that you offer. We need the life that you offer because we're not able to do it on our own. So God, breathe on us. Give us new life. Wash our hearts clean. Give us your spirit. Renew us. Take away our sins. Transform us. Help us to follow you in a way that reflects real joy and not self-righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.